if you're attempting to please God, to get right with God because of your works or by keeping the law, you will always be a slave. You can't change that status. Ye must be born again. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Lord, this morning we again just are in awe of the goodness found, displayed for us in the cross. And Lord, we thank you that you paid our penalty, that we deserve the wrath of God. It was reserved for us, and yet by your grace you came and you bore our penalty in your body on the tree, and you died, and you were buried, and yet, Lord, triumphantly you rose again. And so this morning, we, as those who are in Christ, are now risen with Christ, seated in the heavenly realms. And Lord, though often we don't feel like it, whatever that means, Lord, we thank you that we are seated with you and that one day we'll be with you forever. And so until that day, may we be continually sanctified, made holy, drawn closer to you, and Lord, that we would take the gospel from our hearts, from this place, to the ends of the earth. And so Lord, we need your help today to understand your word as we've gathered together to study it and to apply it, to interpret it, to understand it rightly. Lord, would you go with us today, but even now empower us by your spirit to learn. Teach us, Holy Spirit, we pray. And Lord, we thank you that this expression of the church, Shoreline, is not the only expression in Florida and in Southwest Florida. So Lord, we pray for those other churches in our region, that they would gather together in your name, preach boldly the truth of the gospel, and that they would also be sent on mission to this community. Lord, we pray for the 941 region of Lakewood Ranch, Sarasota, Bradenton, that this region, this community would know Jesus because of maybe even today what happens here in this room. So, Lord, work in our hearts. Work in the hearts of those watching right now on Facebook Live. Work in the hearts of those listening to this podcast and do a great work in and through your word. It's in Christ's name alone that we can even pray this. And God's people together said, amen, amen. The title of the sermon today is this. Have you even read this? Have you even read this? Uh, There was a group of high school students who received the following test one afternoon in their English class. Maybe you were in one of these classes where the English teacher pulled this on you. Look on the screen. The teacher gave him a test, and at the top it said this, following instructions, a diagnostic exam. And then it said this, carefully follow each direction below. You may not ask the instructor or any classmates for help or advice. Okay, there it is. And then a list of 10 instructions on the test. Number one, this is a test to see if you can follow directions. First, read everything on this page before doing anything so that you will know exactly what to do. Number two, put your complete name, first and last, in the upper right-hand corner of this page. Number three, draw five small squares under your name. Number four, on the back of this paper, multiply three by 19 and circle your answer. Number five, loudly call out your first name when you've read this so that your instructor can see who got this far. Number six, if you think you follow directions carefully up to this point, call out loud, I am following directions. Number seven, go up to the board and write the answer from instruction number five, the math question, and put a circle around it, then return to your seat. Number eight, in your native language, your first language, count from one to 10 out loud in a normal speaking voice. Number nine, say clearly and loudly so that almost everyone can hear you. I am almost finished. And then, of course, number 10. Now that you followed instruction number one and you've read everything before doing anything, please follow only instruction number two and sit quietly and watch as your classmates fail to do what was instructed on this exam. You have earned 100%. Have you ever been in one of those uh, classes where that happened to you and you were yelling out your name? Yes. It's important to know what you're reading, and it's important to pay attention to what you've read. As we continue our study in the letter of Galatians, today we continue chapter 4, and Paul the Apostle wonders if he's labored for these believers in vain. And one of the things that he's curious about uh, with those who desire to follow the law for salvation is, 
Have you really read and understood all that you've signed up for? Have you even read the Old Testament in its entirety? Because if they had, then they would understand what they were truly yoking themselves to by returning to the law in addition to faith in Christ as a means of salvation. And so he's perplexed about them. And today we're going to see three things in the rest of chapter 4. And as I just read, it's a big passage of Scripture, so, and it's a difficult passage. We have to really lean forward and focus. So we're going to see these three things in chapter 4 if you're taking note. We're going to see in verses 12 through 20, which are very distinct from the rest of the book, an appeal. Verses 12 through 20 is an appeal from a pastor's heart. Then we're going to see, secondly, an allegory in verses 21 through 27. Kind of a, a picture in the Old Testament, a narrative that happened in an allegory that we can draw out of. And then verses 28 through 31, we're going to see how Paul applies that allegory to uh, his focus point of uh, what he's talking about to those in the circumcision group. So to break these down, we're going to see an appeal of love from a pastor's heart, an allegory from an Old Testament story, and an application of the allegory specifically challenging the Galatians at least one more time. Now, so far in this letter, Paul has referenced a lot of things. He's referenced the Abrahamic covenant, and, and he's shown how the promise to Abraham came before the law. It was before the law. And so he also has pointed out that a pedagogue, a tutor, so to speak, in Roman culture represents how the law kept those under the law imprisoned until Christ came. Last week, we read Paul's analogy of a child inheriting the father's estate once he had come of age, and how we, too, are adopted into the family of God as co-heirs with Christ. As Amanda read that text during our time of singing and worship, didn't you see how she was almost caught up in, in this rapturous joy? And she was just overcome, almost began to weep, because that section is so glorious. We realize that we are adopted into the family of God, and we can call upon God as our father. Now today we're going to see a powerful final analogy that would absolutely lay the Judaizer's argument to rest. But before he shares it, Paul from the heart makes a strong appeal uh, to these believers. So let's first look at this appeal starting in verse 12. Look at it with me. He says in verse 12, brothers. Uh, he's reaching to them as a peer. I'm a brother. This is brother to brother. We're in a family. This is a relationship. So relationally he says, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are, and you did me no wrong. You'll notice here in verse 12, and then in verses 28 and 31, Paul calls the Christians there in Galatia brothers. In verse 19, Paul adds to that and calls them my little children, my beloved children. So listen, church, this appeal does not come from a master to a slave, from an employer to an employee, from a king to a subject, or from a lord to a serf. This is a brother appealing to brothers. This is a father pleading for his children. John Stott says this, in Galatians 1 through 3, we've been listening to Paul the apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the faith. But now we're hearing from Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul the passionate lover of souls. And did you notice what Pastor Paul is entreating them to? He says, I entreat you to become as I am. Please circle that phrase, to become as I am. That's what I'm wanting you to be and to do. Now listen, guys, this is the first imperative in the entire letter of Galatians. This is the first time in chapter 4 that we actually have an imperative. The first time in his writing that Paul gives a command is to invite them to follow his example. And what does he say? He says, become as I am. In other words, he's saying, hey, church, follow my example and let's plunder legalism. Do what I'm doing. Cast away the bondage of the law. Let's live as sons of the Father, free to be in this family. And then he says, become as I am, for I also became as you are. <laughs> in other words, hey, I know what it's like. I became as you are. I know what it's like to be under the bondage, under the constraints of the law. I get that. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I, I began the t-shirt factory. I live there, and I understand what it's like to do that. So he says, become as I am. Turn away from relying on the law as a means of developing your spirituality and your maturity. And then he says this, you did me no wrong. 
Now, a better translation is, you did not injure me. You did not injure me. And I think this is important to point out here that this letter, which has some very strong and impassioned statements, we'll get to one of them next week in chapter 5, this was not written by Paul from a place of personal injury. He's saying, you didn't do me any wrong. I'm not writing this offended. I'm not writing this angry. Now, often when we're upset about something that someone has done against us, we can respond in a wounded way. I've heard this axiom uh, on the screen, hurt people will hurt people. Have you heard of that before? Hurt people hurt people. It'll make your brain bleed, but just think about it. Hurt people will hurt people. And generally, that's true. When we harbor unforgiveness or bitterness or wounds that people have inflicted upon us, often we'll respond to them or to others in ways that are completely mismatched. They don't seem to fit. So you're at the restaurant and your server is incredibly short and they're suddenly rude to you and you kind of go, you're not getting a tip today. But then you begin to inquire, you begin to ask them, how's it going? And then you find out they just lost a loved one. And so as my grandpa used to say, the problem is sometimes not really the problem. Uh, If there's a scathing response from someone, maybe there's great hurt under the surface at the heart level. But see, that's not what's motivating Paul. Paul is not wronged by them, so he's not writing to them from a place of personal injury. And in fact, he goes out to point out, look, you guys were loving to me. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, you know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And even though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God. Even better, you received me as Christ Jesus himself. And he says, what then has become of your blessedness? I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Wow. That's a very generous thing to do. What is this about? In my study for this sermon, Bible students love to bring conjecture into what was this body ailment. What was it? We want to know what happened to Paul. Uh, And so a lot of imagination goes into these verses. You could ask the question, what was this body ailment that Paul's referring to? And there's three big ideas here, if you want to jot these down for fun. You can write these down. Um, He mentions in verse 14 that he had a condition. Okay, so we don't know what that was. But then in verse 15, he says, you guys would have gouged out your eyes for me. So maybe it's connected. Uh, Some people believe that Paul had an ocular problem. He had an eye problem. And so that's the first maybe. It's it's speculated that on the road to Damascus, when uh, a bright light shone around Paul, Jesus spoke to him that suddenly Paul was blinded for three days, and the speculation is that people believe Paul may have struggled with poor eyesight ever since that moment. That because Christ blinded him and he kind of could see again and the scales kind of fell off his eyes, that he still didn't have great eyesight after that. And that's possible. They're willing to give him his eyes so that he can see better. Um, In Galatians 6.11, he says, look how big my handwriting is. So it's possible that he's like, wow, I can't see. I'm going to write large. Maybe that's happening. And maybe that's the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Probably not. So that's theory number one. Or there's another theory that in that region, the coastal plain and the swampy areas near Pamphylia were racked with mosquitoes. And historically, if you were traveling through there and you stayed too long, you could get malaria. And and so there was a malaria epidemic at the time of Galatia, um, first century, And when you contracted this sickness, the only remedy was to go up into the hilly area, the the cooler air of the hills of Galatia. So they would say that Paul showed up there sick with malaria, and this is the body ailment he's referring to. And the church there had to care for him and resuscitate him and nurse him back to health. That's possible. The, The third suggestion is that Paul had epilepsy that Paul had a condition known as epilepsy. The phrase in verse 12 where he says, you did me no wrong, is literally the phrase, you did not spit at me. You didn't spit at me. Now, why is that important? Well, in the ancient world, it was custom for uh, men to spit when they met an epileptic so that the evil spirit, they believed, of that epilepsy would not affect them uh, beyond the afflicted person. So if you spit at them. So Paul uses that phrase, you didn't spit at me when I arrived. So did Paul have an eye problem? Did he have malaria? Did he have epilepsy? Did he have all three? Listen, I think it's hard enough for us to go to the doctor and diagnose a condition of a living man, let alone one who's been dead for 1,900 years. Uh, This is a sermon. This is not WebMD, okay? So no matter what his condition, the point he's making, let's not get off on that tangent, 
The point he's making is that the churches there received him as they would an angel. They received him as if Jesus himself were with them. And so then he says, but where's your gratitude now? You're willing to give me an eye transplant when you first knew me. What has changed? Why, why have you changed this? Has your blessedness um, changed? And so look at verse 17. He's now referring to these guys who kind of came in. They cut in on the church. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Now, that kind of seems confusing. But a more accurate translation is for those of you who have the New King James Version. It gets it right here in verse 17. New King James says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. So the word here that's key is the word zeal. And the idea is that the cause of these Judaizer zeal is not a good purpose. So the men opposed to Paul wanted to cut the Galatians off from other influences, including Paul himself. And if you've been in a false cult, then the same thing has happened to you. I've talked to many of you shoreliners who were involved in a, a small cultish type um, fellowship or um, belief group. And um, you can attest to this of being zealously pursued by the leadership or the people and then suddenly told to stop listening to that sermon, stop being a part of that group. Hey, don't hang out with those friends anymore. That family member needs to be shunned or we shun the people in our group if they are outside of our beliefs or outside of our practice. And some of you have experienced this. Uh, David Gusick says many cults use a technique informally known as love bombing. That's what it's known as, love bombing. They overwhelm a prospective member with attention, support, and affection. Yet it isn't really a sincere love for the prospect. It's not love. It's really just a technique to gain another member. It's love so that you'll be a part of us, and that's the initial thing. And so these men, he says, are zealous. And Paul says, you know, zeal for good things is good. Look at verse 18. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. So zeal for good things is good. You could read it this way. It's almost like Paul saying this. I don't mind when others fuss over you, even when I'm not with you, provided they have the right motives and a pure heart. That's fine if they're going to make a fuss over you and I'm not with you, but they better have the right heart. Right? We know this, church. Zeal by itself is not a good thing. Zeal by itself is not a good thing. It's, it's neutral. Zeal can actually be a horrible thing if applied to the wrong thing. In other words, the Nazis were certainly zealous, but that zeal was bad. Okay? It must be zeal with knowledge for a good purpose. And, and so Paul says, man, it's good to be made much of for a good purpose, but their purpose isn't good. It's just to make much of you so you'll like them and you'll cut me off. Now notice what he goes on to say. The most honest moment in this entire letter from Pastor Paul. He says in verse 19, 20, my little children, my dear children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'm just puzzled. The, the word translated there could be puzzled or more literally, Paul saying perplexed could be this. I am lost at this distance from you. Remember, Paul was writing a letter that would take weeks to arrive. It would take weeks to be circulated to all the churches he's writing to. And it may or may not have been well received. And so he's writing something that could take a long time to get to someone. You guys know this. There's a thing called text bubble anxiety. You know what I'm talking about? Where you text something kind of important or serious or damaging or like I quit. Right? You text your boss that. Don't do that. But you, you text something kind of heavy. And then you're waiting for the response of the person or people. And then all of a sudden you see dot, 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 like they're writing something. And so you're like, okay, what are they going to say? I want to see what they're saying. Okay. Um, oh, my gosh. They're, they're, this is the long thing they're going to respond to. This can't be good. What, oh, they, and then it, does, it goes away. <laughs> they didn't say anything. And so then you're, you're unable to sleep. You can't eat. You're worried about them. And then they write back and say, okay, you know, two days later. Like, Thanks for that. Got no sleep. Well, I've done this. I, 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 I know some of you, and I've done this, where uh, we've sent a letter or an email or a text, and we probably should have had that conversation face-to-face. -face. Honest moment, I've done that, even to some shoreliners here. Forgive me, all right? Um, I think it's more important to meet face-to-face -face and have those difficult conversations, and don't just be strong in your writing, uh, but definitely don't quit your job or break up with your fiancé over text. Please don't do that. Don't be that guy. Paul didn't have Skype or FaceTime. 
So he couldn't truly convey what he was trying to say in just words on a page. But in verse 19, you catch some of his agony. He's agonizing over them. He's calling them little children, and he uses this analogy of a mother in the middle of the pains of childbirth. I'm in anguish like a mom giving birth to you. John Stott even went so far to say this. This is heavy. He said Paul miscarried when he first gave birth to them. He gave birth to them, but he miscarried because they went off this weird path. So now he's hoping that by reaching and appealing to them, he can give birth to them, and now they'll be healthy, and the end result would be Christ formed in them. Wow. See, Paul didn't want Paul to be formed in them. He wanted Christ to be formed in them. And listen, that's the true heart of any pastor, of every pastor, that we're not seeking to make disciples of ourselves. We're seeking to make disciples of Christ. We're not wanting to beget spiritual children who are clones of us, far be it, but we want those who are Christ-like. And so the appeal of Paul is rooted not in trying to win an argument or to prove them wrong. Listen, it was motivated by his concern and his love for them. And for those of us who are a little more surly or serious about doctrine, that's a good thing, but may we learn from this. The heart of our appeals to those in error should be not to win the argument, but to win the brother. That's our desire, uh, and that's Paul's desire. Now, starting in verse 21, this kind of gets fun. Paul lays out a powerful allegory, and these are some of the most awesome kind of parallels in all of the book of Galatians. So follow with me, track with me the second point of the allegory. Verse 21, he says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? In other words, have you even read this? If you get the law, then you know there's something in the law that speaks to your exact situation, your exact scenario. And then he gives us the story of Abraham and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarai, and Hagar, the slave. He says in verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Then he adds this in verse 24. Please note this. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Allegorically. Okay? This is important for us to follow. Track with me. What Paul's doing here is he wants to illustrate what he's been trying to explain. And that's a really good thing to do in communication. Let me just draw you a picture or a story to tell what I've been trying to tell you. Now, Paul does this here using typology from the Old Testament. Now, notice that he says in verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically. He does not say it must be an allegory. That's a different way of looking at this. He's not saying the story was an allegory um, because that would be incorrect. Uh, it's not straight allegory. There's a guy named Philo and the early church. Some people used allegory, and, and, and they used allegory for everything. And Paul's technique is different. Um, the, the philo use or the early church's misuse would ignore the historical setting and develop teachings that were totally different than the author's original intent. Like on the screen, let me, let me just explain this. Allegory is this. It's the expression by means of symbolic fictional figures and actions of truths or generalizations about human ex existence, also an instance as in a story or painting of such expression. Notice with me, fictional or symbolic, okay? And that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not saying this is an allegory and Hagar doesn't exist and Sarah didn't exist and these are just kind of cool stories that give us little spiritual truths to feel good about ourselves like a warm blanket at night. No, he's saying it's actually a historical event that happened, but we can take it and interpret it allegorically. We can draw a picture between these two women. Now, if we wanted to do this in an absolutely horrific way, we could take, I just want to illustrate this to you, we could take the story of the three pigs, the three little pigs, and so we could do it this way. We could say, you know, there were three little pigs, and they, they each wanted to build a house, and so the first little pig built his house with straw, and then what happened? The wolf came, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew, oh, you've, you know this story, yeah, good, and he blew the straw house down, so then the first pig ran to the second pig's house, and he had a house made of wood, and the wolf chased him down, and and blew, huffed and puffed and blew his house down. So those two pigs ran to the smart pig uh, who had a nice brick house. And the wolf came and he huffed and he puffed and he couldn't blow down the house made of brick. And I think the story gets, it turns a weird turn there. And I think they eat the wolf. I don't know, something bad happens. But if we wanted to allegorize this, and this is, 
I want to skip this because this feels cringy to even try this. But we would say, church, you know, that's the story of the three pigs. And so we need to build our house, our spiritual life, not out of wood, not out of hay, not out of straw, but brick. And when Satan comes to huff and puff and tempt us and attack us, we need to build with the right materials. We need good works with the right motives. And, and then we won't go through suffering or hardship. We will always be prosperous and we'll bring home the bacon. <laughs> see, see how bad that is? That is horrible. And yet many churches today, that's, that's what you get. You get a nice little story and we're going to allegorize it and we're going to make it moral therapeutic deism. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is not saying the Genesis account is an allegory like the Pilgrim's Progress. See, the problem with allegorical interpretation of Scripture is that it violates the historical nature of the Bible and denies the value of redemptive history. Paul's not allegorizing. He's actually confirming the historicity of the Genesis account. And so he brings us back to a familiar story, the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. And this is better than allegory. This I would call typology. It's a picture in the Old Testament that seemed to be concealed that is now revealed. It's a picture of uh, something gospel-centered or Christ-centered. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, the scriptures testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me. In other words, Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you even read this? Do you even know what you're reading? It's about me. And so when we look at the story in Genesis 16, we see a beautiful picture of what Paul's illustrating. So we're going to do that. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 16 and look at the story very quickly for sake of time. We're going to walk through it really quick. So if you have your Bibles, pause your, your uh, scripture journals, grab your Bible, look at Genesis 16. Or swipe there if you have a device. Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Look at this story. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, incidentally, the name Hagar means run away. It means flee. There's an Arabic equivalent, which means to forsake or retire. And if you note the word Hagar, it's similar to Hagira, uh, which is kind of the famous flight of Muhammad, the Hagira, same root word, Hagar. So it means to flee, to forsake, to drag away, to run away. Sarah should have figured that out that morning when she thought about her servant's name. It means run away and go in the opposite direction. She should have done that. But look at verse 2. Sarai said to Abram, behold now, pay attention, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. In other words, if you want the, um, the real reality of that verse. She's saying, she's my slave, so she belongs to me, so have sex with her, and her child will be our child. Okay? Now let me suggest to you today that that is a terrible suggestion. That is a terrible proposition. That is suggesting, among other things, cooperative adultery, sex slavery, and forced adoption. Uh, just to name a few. So don't for a moment be misled that the Bible is condoning this practice. No, just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean it prescribes it, right? The Bible is honest and true and communicates all of the gory details, even the details that aren't so, you know, positive as long as they're accurate. And so Sarai's suggestion is an idiotic, wicked, ridiculous moment of cowardice and one would think that a man of faith like Abram would affirm his love and his patience for Sarai and for God and disregard it. But he didn't. Now, while we're on this topic, might as well just say it, the, the concept of extramarital fornication or sexual experience outside of marriage is never acceptable in Scripture. So I, just to name a few, a swinger lifestyle, if you have friends with benefits, if you watch pornography with your spouse, or you sexed with people you aren't married to, all of this is under the banner of the biblical concept of porneia. The Greek word porneia is where we get the word pornography from, and this means all sexual debauchery. Uh, it's all there under that heading. It's kind of the junk drawer of sexual sin. So if you're thinking today, you know what? I wonder if that one or two things that pastor didn't mention by name, I wonder if that counts as porneia. Please don't email me wondering it. Yes, it is that thing. It's fornication. It's condemned by God. Save the email. Crucify the flesh. Okay? So Abram listens to Sarah. He sleeps with Hagar. 
the slave. Hagar has a baby, and the baby's name is Ishmael. And eventually Hagar mistreats Sarai because she's able to conceive and Sarai's not. And Sarai begins to mistreat um, Hagar, who then flees. And so look at verse 11. She lives up to her name and runs. And the verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael, the son of bondage, the wild donkey of a man. It would be over a decade after this before God would instruct Abram to cast out the slave woman and the son of bondage because soon the son of promise, Isaac, would be born. But in the meantime, we have this child born based on the flesh, based on a fearful decision out of a distrust or a lack of faith in God. Now, church, why is it that whenever we trust or, or we don't trust, whenever we doubt God's timing, we give birth to a bunch of Ishmaels? Why is that? We, we trust God, Lord, I know you're going to come through, and then it's like the 11th hour, and he hasn't come through, and so what do we do? We begin to produce in our own strength what we think will help God out. And there's almost always a gap of time when God gives a promise and the, the fulfillment of the promise happens. And it's in that gap of time that we become patient, don't we? We begin to say, okay, Lord, this isn't happening. i got to make this happen. You promised this, and so I'm going to try to make this happen. And we produce Ishmael's. Now, after 13 years, God reveals to Abram he's still going to have a son. It was not going to be Ishmael. And so there were two children... Uh, and these children essentially represent the promise of God and the flesh. Now, with that in mind, look back at Galatians chapter 4. Two children were born from Abraham. Paul saw the current situation in Galatia as an analogy to these two children in Abraham. One was by social custom, and one was by divine promise. Listen, follow me. One corresponds to works righteousness producing things in your own strength, and the other corresponds to the life of faith and trusting in God's promise. You could say grace, works and grace. And so for Paul, the law could not save but had become a death sentence on sinful man. And only in Christ could true salvation be found. And so he says, starting in verse 22, that the woman, or Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, and then he says down in verse uh, 25 that he begins to tell us who is who. So look on the screen with me. He says that there are two mothers, there are two sons, two covenants, two cities, and two children. So if you're taking note, we'll leave that on the screen real quick. Two mothers. There's Hagar and there's Sarah. There are two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. There are two covenants, the covenant of law and there's the covenant of promise. He mentions two cities. There's a present Jerusalem, which represents Judaism, and there is the Jerusalem from above, which represents the church. And then he says there are two children. There are the children of slavery, the production of this, which now yokes you into slavery, which is legalism, or there's the children of freedom, which would represent grace-filled Christians. So with that in mind, look back at verse 24. He says, one is from Mount Sinai, where the law came, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So Hagar is not our mother. The Jerusalem from above that corresponds to Sarah, the children of promise. And then he says this, he quotes Isaiah 54, and says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who has, of the one who has a husband. What he's doing here is he's showing that there will be many more children born to the desolate one who can't have children. That's what he's quoting in Isaiah 54. The barren one who received the promise will be more than the one who has a husband and has lots of, of children. Uh, and so this powerful typology shows us there's a lot more going on under the surface between Hagar and Sarah, between Isaac and Ishmael. And what he's saying is you and I need to remind ourselves that we're, first of all, we're not Ishmael. 
We're Isaac. We're the children of the promise. So why would we yoke ourselves again under the slave woman? What do we do with the slave woman now? And that's where we get to the application of uh, starting in verse 28 of this idea. Look at verse 28. Now you brothers, and he's not just speaking to Galatia. He's speaking to you. Those of you sitting here today, those of you listening, he's speaking to you and to me. You brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're not children of bondage, of slavery, of law. You're children of grace. See what Paul's saying? He's saying as Christians, we don't identify with Ishmael. We identify with Isaac. We're not part of a covenant of works, but of grace. And now note though the relationship now between Ishmael and Isaac. Look at verse 21 or 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. Hmm. You see, the Genesis account tells us in Genesis 21.9 that Ishmael had scoffed at and mocked Isaac. Maybe he was a little baby, maybe he was toddling, and so the older brother just made fun of him, which typically happens even today. If you're a younger sibling, sorry about that. I'm an older sibling, we're better. Um, but <clears throat> that was not affirmed, right? He, he mocked and, and, and scoffed at Isaac. And notice what Paul is saying, the legalist is still doing that. They'll persecute and scoff and attack the one who's born of the Spirit. Paul says, so also it is now. I like what Boyce said. He said, it was the Jews who killed the prophets, not the Gentiles. It was the Pharisees and other religious leaders who opposed Jesus and instigated his execution, which was carried out by the Romans. Paul's fiercest opponents were the fanatically religious Judaizers. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But notice how Paul brings this application home. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Have you even read this? Do you know what the scripture says? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. It's impossible, church, for Ishmael to do anything to become Isaac. He can't do anything to change his status from Ishmael to Isaac. He must be cast out. So the application is if you're attempting to please God, to get right with God because of your works or by keeping the law, you will always be a slave. You can't change that status. You must be born again. Now, Paul says, what does the scripture say? What do we do? He says, cast out the slave woman. Stop letting Hagar the horrible live awkwardly in the house with Ishmael persecuting you. Cast her out. Get rid of legalism. Plunder it. Now look at the next verse. You'll notice in the scripture reading, I didn't stop at chapter 4. I kept reading because Paul's train of thought didn't end with the chapter distinctions that were added centuries later. Verse 1, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Chapter 5, verse 1 is all rooted in chapter 4 in this story of Hagar and Sarah. Don't segregate it, don't separate it when you're quoting it, when you're trying to understand it. Note the indicative and the imperative in verse one. Christ has set us free, that's indicative, that's true. So now here's what we do, stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Yokes involve being under submission of control. If you're under a yoke, you're yoked to another ox, now the two of you walk together. That's why Paul says later, don't be yoked with unbelievers because one of you will walk fast, one will walk slow. You'll go in circles instead of straight lines. So don't uh, be under submission to a yoke that controls you. Uh, you don't want to be under that yoke because when you're under a yoke, you're told where to go and you're being steered somewhere you don't necessarily want to go. And so the application, church, couldn't be clearer. He says, cast out the slave woman. Uh, don't court it. Don't entertain it. Don't give a nod to it. Don't give it a listen. Don't give it an ear. Don't read up on it, consider it, invite it in. Don't open the commentary. Well, this guy's a little more legalistic on this note. Let me consider his perspective. No, you're to cast it out. You're to stop trying to please God through works apart from or in addition to the finished work of Christ. That will only put you and I in bondage. The slave woman will not inherit with the free woman. So the application is pretty simple for us. The application is church, stand firm. Stand firm. In what? In the grace of God. 
and do not put yourself under the slavish yoke of legalism. Don't do it. There's a desperate pleading in this chapter from a loving pastor. There's a powerful allegory, and there's a strong and clear application. It's really hard for us to add any more to what Paul says in this text, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> uh, I want to add a few points of application. So if you're taking note, let's apply this. The application is pretty clear, but let's add to that. When you live a life of grace, here's what I would say, four things. When you and I live a life of grace, number one, you will, not may, you will get tempted to fall back into legalism. But we're to stand firm, right? We're to stand firm. We opened this series, and I mentioned my own battle in the past with legalism. I showed up at a Calvary Chapel, and Galatians was being taught verse by verse, and I realized, wow, I'm a legalist. I didn't realize where I was at. A little bit of my backstory, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but a little bit of my backstory. Um, when I got originally saved at age 17, Christ captured my heart and, and pulled me out of the mire. And I had a lot of like music that kind of helped me maybe reflect back on my old life. And I was listening to this music. And so when I became a follower of Christ, I, I had this moment where I took all, I, mean, I had a great anthology of CDs. Remember those? Remember CDs? I had those. Um, any eight trackers here? Any tape people? Yeah, I remember tapes. And so the tape runs out and you flip it around, turn it around. Um, so I had CDs and I remember um, coming to faith in Christ and I started getting just this heavy conviction about how secular and evil and um, sinful and demonic all of those amazingly well-produced CDs were. And so <clears throat> I just took them all one by one and snapped them. And it was like this act of, of like worship, I thought. Like, God, aren't you so pleased with me? Oh, here's REM's greatest hits, snap. And here's U2, snap. And here's, and so I'm breaking all of these. Oh, I have, you know, the Beatles, snap. And so I'm breaking all this music and I'm, I'm like pouring it out as an offering to the Lord. Aren't you so pleased with this pile of dead carcass uh, CDs? And look at all of this. I'm gonna light it on fire and worship for you because I'm pleasing you by doing this. And then about two years later, I'm like, man, I wish I didn't <laughs> break all of those great CDs. What was I thinking? Uh, because I was doing that motivated, I thought simply, but I was motivated, listen, out of a desire, thinking that that was pleasing God by doing that. And there are some great things that we can do that are motivated by a heart of love and a heart of worship. But me breaking those CDs didn't put me in a greater standing with Christ. Do you follow me? That didn't put me in closer, now I'm closer to God. I got a little bit, I inched towards the throne of God in heaven because I broke those CDs. Now I'm a little closer to Christ. My halo got a little brighter. No, if we believe in the finished work of Christ, don't we? Then that means I'm perfectly righteous because Christ is perfectly righteous and I'm not made righteous by my good works but by his good works, right? And so I am now, right now, in perfect standing with the Father and nothing I can do will change that status for the better or for worse. So I can rest in that finished work. So if I try to go back into legalism, I'm saying that what Christ did is not enough. It's not effective enough, and I have to do more. Now, that doesn't mean the Spirit won't put certain things and convictions on you to avoid certain things, of course. And certainly things that are sinful, we should walk in the Spirit and we should walk in obedience to Scripture. But listen, plunder legalism by firmly planting your feet in the grace of God. You're not a child of the slave but of the free. So don't live like a slave. It's not about outward compliance to a code of conduct. It's about a love relationship with the living God. So beware of the temptation to believe God is more impressed with your list than with his son. Number two, here's how we can apply this. When you live a life of grace, some of you right now are like, I don't like that, and I'm going to talk to the pastor afterwards, okay? Well, when you live a life of grace, you will have a burden for those bound in legalism. You'll begin to see people in legalism, and you'll have a burden for them. Paul uh, was in anguish as a mother giving birth to a child for them. You see, the hypocrisy that we see in the legalist can grieve us if it doesn't anger us. But rather than getting triggered, the best response for us is to pray for them and to share the truth of Scripture with them. I believe we should make the same loving appeals to the legalist and urge them to live like we live, like Paul did. Not to get in a, a debate with them and then flaunt our liberty, like, well, you don't believe in, in this, so I'm going to flaunt it. No, I think that we ultimately should help them to see the folly of their ways and the bondage they're stuck in by lovingly uh, living that freedom out with joy. 
but we'll have a burden for those in legalism. Thirdly, to apply this, if you're living a life of grace, this is a hard one. You will be persecuted by the religious. So we have to expect persecution from the world, and I think we're half prepared for it every Sunday. Like, okay, I'm equipped, now I'm going to go into the trenches of the world, and I'm going to take some heat for being a Christ follower, and I'm kind of ready for that. But when we're persecuted by the church, or more specifically, the legalistic religious, then it can surprise us. David Platt said it this way, throughout the history of God's people, some of the greatest struggles have not come from the outside, but from the inside. And that can be surprising. We're not expecting it from our brothers. But listen, when we're living the grace-filled life, people will want to know, why aren't you fulfilling my list? And, and why is God pleased with you when you're living that way? In fact, I'm going to quote Kanye West, and I'm sure someone will get mad about that. But um, Kanye West recently came out with an album called Jesus is King, and he's getting a lot of praise and a lot of hatred, a lot of criticism for this. And the criticism is staggering. I listened to the album several hundred times, and um, <clears throat> can't say I don't love it. Um, so I listened to it, and, and his song, Hands On, um, speaks about how fragile famous people are. And uh, yes, I'm going to quote a Kanye West song here this morning. Look at it on the screen. This is, this is, these are some of the words that he says. Now think about this. Knowing what he's going to do, coming out with an, a gospel album, and the criticism he's going to get, not from the unbelievers, but from believers. He says, I deserve all the criticism you got. If that's all the love you have, that's all you got. To sing of change, you think I'm joking. To praise his name, you ask what I'm smoking. Yes, I understand your reluctancy. Yeah, but I have a request, you see. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. Please pray for me. He knows that he's going to receive persecution from Christians, so his request is, would you pray for me? Because I'm going to be hated on. Listen, when we're living a life of grace, you're going to be persecuted by the religious. In fact, someone may persecute me for quoting Kanye West, and that's fine. But listen, fourthly, when you're living a life of grace, number four, you will be misunderstood. The Galatians thought that Paul was alienated from Christ. So they were listening to these Judaizers, oh, stay away from him. He's a bad influence. He's alienated from Christ. When Paul says, no, you're the ones who are alienated. Often the legalist will look at someone who's free in Christ and not under law, and they'll think, well, that person's in sin because they're not doing what I'm doing. And so you will be misunderstood. And I just want to encourage you not to shrink back, not to fall back into uh, the ways of the law, but to worship freely and to be in that uh, love relationship with the Father. So as we close, I want to invite the worship team forward. And I want to close with a Spurgeon quote. I like what Spurgeon said about this. Here's what he said. He said, I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. The habit of regular morning and evening prayer is one which is indispensable to a believer's life. But the prescribing of the length of prayer and the constrained remembrance of so many persons and subjects may gender unto bondage and strangle prayer rather than assist it. In other words, we can say, you know, we need to pray every morning and every evening, yes and amen. But then we start saying, the true Christian will pray at least 45 minutes. And the true Christian will pray for 45 people. And we begin to add this list and see, church, Jesus submitted his life under the yoke of the law so that, Galatians 5.1, we would be free. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was cast out and rejected so that we might be accepted. And in his death on the cross, Jesus fulfilled that original promise made to Abram. It wasn't fulfilled in Isaac ultimately. To bless all people through his seed, that was Jesus. And Jesus in his day even made enemies by telling the truth. And the truth was crucified on a criminal's cross. And all of this was for the glory of God so that Christ would stand in our place, that he would bear our penalty so that you and I would stand, but we would stand firm in the freedom that he provided. So church, my exhortation for you is let's plunder legalism. Let's just simply live for Christ who died for us. Amen? Bow your heads with me. I'm gonna pray a prayer called the Precious Blood. It's a Puritan prayer that comes out of the book Valley of Vision. The 
precious blood. He prays this, and this is my prayer for us this morning. Blessed Lord Jesus, before thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse. I see the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, by the pierced hands and feet, by the bruised body, and by the dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. Its worth is infinite. Its value is beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought. Sin is my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. And yet, sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? Why should the air supply breath? Why should the earth bear my tread? Its fruits nourish me, its creatures subserve my ends. Yet, thy compassions yearn over me. Thy heart hastens to my rescue. Thy love endured my curse. Thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. So let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation. Bathe in thy blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. Father, that's our prayer this morning. As we are gathered in your name, we are filled with gratitude for what you've accomplished for us at Calvary. And we want to say thank you. We want to sing and express our thanksgiving to you for who you are and what you've done. And so this week, Lord, may we reflect on the goodness of God in Christ. And may we realize, Lord, that we're children of the promise and not of law and bondage. We love you and we thank you for that truth today and what it cost your son. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.